Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. Our view is if you learn a little bit about economics, it kind of changes the way you look at the world and the way you look at trade-offs and, uh, and really important decisions that we make about, about government policy. Smith and welcome to this first edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I am so excited to be back in the fold with the Fraser Institute. I have a long history with the Institute and who better to talk about the long history and the growth of Fraser Institute than the person I'm speaking with first, Niels Belthouse, who is the president of the Fraser Institute. Thank you so much for being with us, Niels. I'm delighted to be on your first uh, show, uh, Danielle. We're, we're delighted to have you back in the fold. And um, we're expecting uh, great things. You're 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 obviously a, a wonderful interviewer, and uh, I think after this, it all looks up for you. Uh, you'll you'll have a wonderful uh, audience, and uh, I think we've got a wonderful cast of people that you're going to interview. So delighted to have you back. It's going to be amazing, and you know, in fact, over the years, I feel like I've been doing this even for the past 25 years because I, I don't know if you know my history with the Fraser Institute, but I, I can't really imagine the Fraser Institute not being in my life. I went to your student seminars when I was in university. I got invited to a student leaders colloquium. I did Liberty Fund seminars that uh, that you hosted and invited me to. Uh, I was at the uh, 2005 anniversary celebration of your former executive director, Mike Walker. And then of course, just in my various roles with, um, with media, I've interviewed Fraser Institute scholars and fellows all the way going back to the late 90s and even till most recently when I was on the, on the radio. So I, it's hard for me to imagine Fraser Institute not being in my life. And I, it's been remarkable to watch your growth over that entire period of time. So so tell me tell me a little bit about, uh, about your connection with the Fraser Institute, how you came in, and then we'll talk about the vision that you have as you expand it. Yeah, Danielle, and, and I think uh, it's just wonderful to hear that you were you know, you really came to the Fraser Institute as a result of our student programs, because I don't think many people in the general public know about our student programs. And that's how I came to the Fraser Institute. I, I like you, I, I feel like the Fraser Institute has been a part of my life and it has. I've been here for nearly 20 years. Uh, I went to student programs when, uh, when I was a student in university. Uh, my thesis supervisor, when I was doing some graduate work in economics, was a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Uh, and so you might say it really has for my adult life has been a core part of uh, of my life. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. It's just it's an amazing institution. Uh, I, I think it's one of the most important in Canada. Uh, and I think uh, what you'll see as you interview people associated with the Fraser Institute, they're, they're all so passionate about pushing for for a better Canada. And, and really, that's what we're about. That's what keeps us motivated. Uh, and um, and that's why we have so many wonderful people associated like you associated with us. Can you talk a little bit more about your approach to student education? Because again, it was so, so foundational for me. I I, I was in, I, in your second batch of interns at the Fraser Institute. The first batch included Craig Urish and Ezra Levant and Sonia Arison, who've all gone on to do really interesting things in the think tank world. So I was delighted to to be part of that second batch. And how how important is it to give those opportunities to, to young oh. researchers? It, it's amazing. So we have programs for high school students where 
we, we actually bring in, if you, if you can imagine this, we bring in 200 high school students into an auditorium for a whole day and they learn about economics. Hmm. And, and our view is if you learn a little bit about economics, it kind of changes the way you look at the world and the way you look at trade-offs and, uh, and really important decisions that we make about, about government policy. Uh, we then have programs for high school teachers where we actually develop curriculum, you know, things like, is capitalism good for the poor? Uh, and then they go and teach it into their classroom. Uh, we have programs for university students where they get to hear from amazing scholars on all sorts of different topics. And then they break off and, and talk about it. We take the best ones like you and we bring them into the Fraser Institute through our student leaders colloquium. Uh, some become interns uh, like you did. But I will say that when you look across the country and, and you look at the people that have been associated with the Fraser Institute, have gone through our programs, it's really amazing. It's amazing to see where they go in, into business, into media, uh, into advocacy uh, work. And really, I think that's one of the, the great reaches. You know, we educate this, this amazing group of young people who become leaders in their own right, kind of 10 or 20 years down the road. So it, it's just a wonderful program. I think, in, in fact, uh, it's probably one of our most important, one of the most important things that we do. It doesn't really get uh, recognized, but it, it's critically important. Well, let me just recognize it one more time because I, I graduated like so many young people do out of high school with a particular view about where we were in the state of our environment. And the project I got to work on was Environmental Indicators for Canada and the U.S. And it's actually a pretty darn good news story since the 1970s. And that has stayed with me for the 25 years in all of the different careers that I've had. This notion that you can balance and have the, the right approach to balancing the economy and the environment. You don't have to have trade-off between them and we're doing we're doing much better than than some of the the, the screeching headlines would, would have you believe so i know that you've continued on with that kind of program but i want you to know that it's it's made a huge difference i think in my life and those who who've worked on these projects I'm, I'm sure that that has created foundational experiences for them too yeah you know young people so many young people they they uh, are still discovering the world and and mm -hmm. you know this generation is no different than the last generation is no different than your generation my generation my our parents generation uh, they're discovering the world and and really what we offer is uh facts about the way things actually are in canada around the world and and the, the project that you just mentioned is is so critical i mean i think canadians particularly young canadians right now they kind of hold their head and down in shame in terms of our environmental record and when you actually look at the data we should be kind of thumping our chest and saying hey look we're international leaders on the environment uh and so just getting the facts out there is, i think is so critical uh, and you've obviously played a big part of that um, with respect to your time at the Institute. But I think even more importantly, Danielle, uh, through your time in, in the media, in politics, and now uh, doing this podcast. And that's really why we're we're so excited, because we, we see this foray into podcasting as just another great way to reach Canadians with critical messages uh, and critical facts. You're you're amazingly influential, not just in Canada, but throughout the world. And I want to get into some of that. But, but before we do, Tell us about the original vision of founder Michael Walker. What, what did he hope he was going to achieve when he started off with just a, a handful of, of researchers? It was a pretty small operation at the beginning, and it's massive now. And I want to get a sense of where he thought it would go and where, where you are today. Yeah, you know, uh, Mike Walker is, is a Canadian hero, and um, we all stand on, on shoulders of giants. And, and he's certainly uh, the giant at, at the Fraser Institute. He's still involved, still on our board. Um, you know, he came to the Fraser Institute as a as a young man and um, and really uh, led the development of the Institute from from a small Western based organization that was just getting started into into a, a really influential international organization that now 
uh, is among the top 15, top 15 most influential think tanks in the world. And that's be really because of Mike Walker. And he's so passionate. Um, and really, the, his passion lies in making sure that uh, that Canadians have the highest standard of living that they could possibly have, that this country is looked at internationally as a beacon of hope and uh, and a beacon of how you do things right. Uh, and that's really what drove him. And, and uh, he did that for as as the executive director for uh, over 30 years. And he's been a, a big part, uh, a central part of this organization for its entirety. Um, so we're we're very lucky that, uh, you know, people that came after him uh, really are, are standing on the massive uh, amount of progress that he made in Canada, uh, spreading ideas and spreading uh, facts about the way things actually are and, and how to improve things. He coined a term that stayed with me because this is how I, I now identify myself. He he called me and others and others like us socio-political entro entrepreneurs. So there's a there's a lot of ways to be entrepreneurial, not just in the, the the free enterprise marketplace, but also in the marketplace of ideas around freedom. And so let let's talk a little bit about um uh, the kind of influence that you have. Because as you'd mentioned, you're ranked 14th best, best think tank in the world, recognized by the International Center of Excellence. That, um, that's an amazing honor when you think of how many hundreds of think tanks there are in the world. Give me, give me some idea of, of one, of the, one of the factors that they looked at in giving you that, that, uh, that, that award. Yeah, so, so we are recognized as one of the most influential think tanks uh, in the world. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania uh, ranks about 11,000 think tanks, uh, and um, you know we are uh, ranked 14th. You know, I think I think when you think about the Fraser Institute and what we're trying to do, we're we're trying to give Canadians information, uh, empirical information. So it's not opinions based on nothing. It's not ideological positions. It's not political uh, opinions. It's 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 opinions and data, uh, and it's all driven by empirics. And so the foundation of what we do is this amazing research that uh, that really could end up in, in any academic journal. Uh, our, our peer review process is, is uh, much like academic journals. Uh, and that's really the foundation of what we do. And we and this really comes back to Mike Walker, you know, recognizing that doing great research is really the foundation. But if that's what you're doing, you're not changing the world. And really, it's about how do you get that research that is very complex uh, and, you know, Maybe 100 people across the country are going to read your your uh, your publication. You know, those that are kind of uh, geeks when it comes to data. But how do you get those messages into the hands of regular Canadians who aren't uh, uh, like you and I, that which are just so so kind of neck deep in policy? And 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 Mike uh, Walker was just an expert at at really communicating to to regular Canadians. And when I mean regular Canadians, I mean I just mean those who aren't steeped in economics and policy. And, and really, that's what we do. We retail our message to Canadians and give them the facts. Because I think Canadians armed with the facts are, are really powerful. Um, and that's ultimately how you're going to create change. Uh, if, if you want to change uh, Canada, give Canadians facts about the way things are, about countries that are doing things better. Uh, and uh, I think politicians will follow. Because I, I have a firm belief that most politicians, and, and forgive me, Danielle, I know you were in this realm in your previous life, most politicians are followers. They're going to mm -hmm. take a read on what the general public wants. And they're going to develop policies uh, that they believe will get them elected. And so if we can shape the way Canadians think and arm them with good information, um, then then obviously the politicians will implement policies that will lead to better lives for Canadians. And that's why we're all here. I mean, we're, we are all here because uh, we want 
Canadians to have the highest standard of living possible. Tell me how big you are now, because I remember when I was receiving press releases, it was it seemed like there was one every other day that you you, yeah. you must have a, an immense number of researchers, not only on staff, but also that you're connected with around the world. Yeah, uh, Danielle, you know, we have thousands and thousands of people here. And I'm only kidding. <laughs> we're a very we're a very small team. Uh, you know, we're, we're a team of 42 uh, people. Um, we have amazing senior fellows. So we have um, academics around the world, primarily in North America, who affiliate with us. Uh, and they're really interested in doing uh, applied applied work. And you're going to have, uh, obviously, so many on your show. Uh, they're amazing. They, they, uh, they publish through the Fraser Institute. And then we've got a core team. And, you know, when you think about how small the Fraser Institute is, uh, and how far we are from any kind of locus of power to be the 14th most influential think tank in the world uh, is really amazing. And if you look at the think tanks that rank above us, they're about 10 times our size when it, when, when, when it comes to revenue. So we're a small, powerful fo uh, force here in Canada, but also internationally. You know, people might be surprised that I started off saying that part of my education was in looking at resource economics and the environment. But what I was also interested by is that in your ranking, you were ranked second in your social policy research and sixth in your health policy research. So you are, are really distinguishing Fraser Institute on some of these issues that are seen to be, I think, more heart issues or soft issues. And I, I want to understand a little bit more about uh, some of the work that you've done there before we get into talking about the, 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 the severe challenges that Canada faces and being able to support our social safety net as we go forward. So, so talk to me about social policy and, and how it is you rank so high. What are some of the projects you're doing there? Yeah, you know, we, we rank high on social policy. We rank high on health policy, uh, on, on international uh, trade. You know, I, I think about it like this. I, I think when you talk to your friends and your colleagues, and your family about what does it mean to actually have a high standard of living? You know, I, I think when you, you people have different opinions, of course, but I think the, 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 there's a lot of overlap. Canadians want a robust economy. They want great opportunity. They want upward mobility. You know, if you, if you work hard and you, you get education and you get experience, you know, and, and you should be able to provide a better life for yourself and your family, regardless of where you came from. They want us to take care of the sick. I mean, healthcare is critically important. Uh, education is critically important. How do you give Canadians uh, a, a real equal opportunity to succeed? And so, uh, and then of course, taking care of, uh, taking care of our, our citizens, social policy is critically important. So. When we think about the research that we do, it's really in those buckets. It's, mm -hmm. it's economic, it's uh, it's it's social, it's health, it's education, uh, and that's really what matters because that's what matters to Canadians. So you know, when when we look at social policy, it's things like how are we taking care of the elderly? How are we taking care uh, of those that are disadvantaged in, in our society? What is actually the best way to promote upward mobility? Uh, those things are all so critically important. Daycare is a critically important issue right now. And it has been for for many many years, uh, and so we touch on all of these issues, and and they're 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 just obviously critically important to making sure that Canadians generally uh, have the highest standard of living they can possibly have. All right. So when I was connected to the Fraser Institute years ago, this just shows you how important a vision statement is. It still stays with me. It was Fraser Institute was looking for free market solutions to public policy problems. Is it still that, or is it more than that? I think it's broader than that. Uh, you know, really, when you just think about our purpose, it's 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 that really it's that standard of living. The, the next question is how how do you go about getting that standard of living? You know, looking empirically around the world about what works and what doesn't work when you're trying to structure policy, economic policy, health policy, education policy, uh, and and that's really what we're after. And so, yeah, economic freedom plays a big part in how you develop 
a robust economy and a robust society. And those countries around the world who are economically free uh, uh, tend to have the, the highest standard of living, tend to have the most upward mobility, tend to have uh, better environmental records. And so that core underpinning of economic freedom and government institutions is just so core uh, because we now have 40 years, uh, 45 years of, uh, of research uh, that really highlights and, and just wonderful examples around the world of countries who, who started out with low levels of economic freedom and have increased and have just done amazing things uh, for the people in those countries. One of the things that I'm trying to do, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is I'm trying to get us all, whether it's left or right, or however someone describes himself, progressive or conservative, I think we all need to agree that having a robust, strong, growing economy, generating jobs, generating wealth, generating tax revenue should be the goal of everybody. And then you can fight over how you how you distribute the revenues that are generated after the fact. But it, it's I don't think that we're there that yet. It seems to me like the polarization, it, there doesn't seem to be this acceptance that we need to have the wealth generators and the job generators free to continue doing what they do best. Do you think I'm, I'm misreading that? Or, or do you think that we're going growing to a consensus? Are we getting further together or are we, are, are we growing further apart? I think it depends on how you ask the question. I, I really do believe that Canadians, for the, the large majority of Canadians, and we could talk about exactly how large that is, but the large majority of Canadians want opportunity. They, they, want, their, they want opportunity for their kids. They want to see that growth up the income ladder. They want to be there. Every parent wants their kids to do better than them, right? We want to see generational mobility. Uh, and and that's really, I think, what Canadians want. Uh, of course, to get there, you need a robust economy. You need lots of business investment. You need high rates of education uh, attainment. Um, and, and and really, that's, uh, that is, I think, shared by the majority of, of Canadians. I don't think there's huge polarization around that. I, I think when you look at polls, and I look at some you know polls pre-COVID, uh, economic opportunity was among the top concerns of, of Canadians. And so uh, I, I really think that's sort of the bedrock, because if you don't have a robust economy, as you said, where do you get the money to do the things that we all want to do uh, in terms of better health care, better education, uh, better social programs? I mean, it's, it's really the economy uh, that uh, that pays for all of those things. And so it's so important to get economic policy right. I, I need you to just make a brief comment about Sweden, because for a lot of, of my years, Sweden has been pointed to as some kind of socialist paradise. But the more you scratch the surface and, and look into how they operate, it is exactly on this model, allowing for a robust free enterprise economy to generate revenue. Yes, they spend a lot of money on social programs, but I think that they are a mix. I think that they understand how important job creation and wealth creation is. Am I am I misreading that? You you know Sweden better than I do, but I've been sort of surprised at how it's been characterized versus uh, the fact that they, they seem to have a bit more of a respect for the role that free enterprise and competition can, can play than, than we seem to. Yeah, I, I think it's important to, you know, can't, we're, we're not, we're not zero or a hundred. We're we're somewhere in the middle, and 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 really, I think it's important to understand that yeah, there are other countries around the world who do certain things better than we do. And Sweden is is, is thought about as by many as a as a socialist country. It's it's in fact uh, the complete opposite. They're very much a capitalistic uh, country. When you look at their tax system, they they certainly penalize income and profits less than we do in in Canada. It's mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, it's one of the things that I, I think makes them uh, wealthy, or the research would show that that makes them wealthy. When when you Look at their healthcare system. Uh, it certainly has more private sector involvement than, than Canada does, uh, and that's one of the things that makes their healthcare system uh, better than than Canada's. They have some competition, uh, and that therefore they get better value for money. So 
I think it's wrong to think about them as a as a socialist country. Uh, and, and I think very much like Canada, there's a struggle there to get policy right, uh, to ensure that you have enough private sector actors uh, to pay for the things that people uh, people want. Before I, I get into the specifics of Canada, I just want to get you to comment on one of your other marquee research projects, which is the Economic Freedom of the World Index. I, I remember learning about that in my early days of my connection with the Fraser Institute. And I, I keep watching those rankings year after year. I'm going to be quite interested in seeing how those rankings change post-COVID, especially since we've seen so many of the changes in Hong Kong, which was always at the, the top of your list. I, I always had this feeling like if you could just see economic freedom grow, then you would see political freedom follow. And I've been I've been dismayed to see that that hasn't been the case in, in Hong Kong. I kind of thought that Hong Kong would have the influence on China as opposed to, to the reverse. But, but give me an idea of, of what the big trends are that you've seen in that Economic Freedom of the World Index. Help, help us understand what, why it is that is, has been so foundational to your work. Yeah, you know, Danielle, you mentioned Hong Kong and, and what's happening there is, is is so unfortunate and so sad. And we were we, we, we led last year a, a group of, of think tanks around the world um, in an open letter uh, that stood with the people of, of Hong Kong. Uh, it's, it, Hong Kong is just such a, a wonderful story about um, how you take a, a society that was in, in poverty and over the course uh, of, you know, of less than half a, a century, it becomes one of the richest places in the world uh, through prudent policy and through economic freedom. Economic freedom doesn't really mean much to the average person, um, but what it really is, it's, it's really about shaping government policy and institutions, you know, ensuring that you have secure property rights, that people can't take away your property, ensuring that you have unbiased court systems, right? That if, if, you, if, you, if you need to adjudicate a, a dispute, uh, that you, you know, you're, you're not going up against a, a stacked uh, court, um, you know, ensuring that you have reasonable amounts of regulation, that you don't have this real wet blanket on entrepreneurs so that they can't innovate and can't start businesses uh, and, and can't excel. Um, that the balance between the government sector and the, the private sector uh, is, is, is optimal. And so that, you know, one, one sector, the government isn't crowding out uh, the private sector. And we wrap uh, all of these variables up into one indicator of economic freedom. Uh, and we rank uh, hundreds of countries around the world on economic freedom. And we're known for this uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. We have a wonderful network of, of over 100 think tanks around the world that take uh, our economic freedom product and use it in their own countries to advance economic freedom. And, and economic freedom, those, those core uh, institutions are absolutely critical for ensuring uh, that we have successful societies, successful in, in all sorts of, of different ways. And, and our index is used by academics around the world. I mean, uh, last year, over a thousand uh, academic and professional publications used our work uh, to try and see what kinds of things that economic freedom uh, impacts. And lo and behold, uh, higher economic freedom, better uh, economic results, uh, better environmental results, uh, better results on education attainment, better results on healthcare, uh, and it goes on and on. And so it's just, it's the bedrock of what makes society successful. And, and that's why it's used all around the world. I mean, all around the world, people are trying to figure out uh, how to create a, a wonderful standard of living. And, and uh, the answer really is an economic freedom. It's interesting because I think we're beginning to see that there is, there's sort of two emerging school of uh, schools of thought around uh, capitalism. And I, I want to get your thoughts on them because we hear more about China's model of state-directed capitalism, which I think has a lot of appeal to politicians, the idea that they can direct the outcomes of entrepreneurial activities. 
Uh, there's also this notion emerging of stakeholder capitalism, that it's not the right objective for corporations to just seek profits. They should be seeking environmental outcomes or social outcomes or having certain uh, uh, equity issues in dealing with their corporate governance structure. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you make of that of that trend. Maybe we, before we talk about the the world in which you inhabit and the kind of policies that you think are going to be successful. Help us understand the attraction of this state-run capitalist model or this this, this uh, stakeholder capitalism model. How is it different from regular old free market capitalism? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really important on, on China. I mean, what has made China uh, wealthier, what has, what has taken, you know, billions of people out of poverty isn't stakeholder capitalism. It's the opening up of markets. Right. It's actually the reverse of state of of, uh, of state capitalism. It's allowing entrepreneurs to flourish. And that's really what uh, uh, happened in China, particularly in, in, in some of the bordering. Uh, sorry, some of the coastal uh, provinces, it increased economic freedom uh, is what led to uh, a more and more wealth generation in, in China. So it's really important to get that right. Um, and yeah, there's there's lots of debates right now about stakeholder capitalism and, and what it actually means. You know, I, I always take it back to sort of the, the, the mom and pop entrepreneur that has a restaurant uh, in their community, uh, you know, obviously their goal is to provide for their family. That's what they do. That's why they, they go out and, and start a restaurant. Um, but in order to actually have a successful restaurant, you need to be part of a community. You need to treat your customers well. You have to have great service. You have to have great products. Um, you have to be part of a community, you probably sponsor a, a baseball team uh, or, or put on a, a, a barbecue of, of some sort. So you're involved and they're really, um, that's what successful businesses do. They, they obviously are focused on the bottom line and they're focused on, on making a profit. And that's the goal that motivates them. That's the goal that motivates competition uh, to do better than the person down the street or the, or the restaurant down the street. Um, and that should be the focus. And when that is the focus, you, you look at all the wonderful things that businesses have brought, big businesses, small businesses, medium businesses have brought people, uh, goods, innovation, services, improving their lives. Uh, and, uh, and really that's the core of capitalism. Uh, it's that competitive spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and, uh, and, and really that's what we should be focused on, uh, not on, on forcing companies and CEOs uh, to, to, uh, to try and uh, to try and get or or achieve social ends, they're they're going to get there anyway. If we allow businesses to do what they do within the regulatory and within the legal framework uh, of a country, uh, we're going to have a wonderful society. And and that's the evidence. The evidence shows uh, when you have greater economic freedom, that uh, you have more of all the things that people want: better healthcare, better education, better environmental outcomes. You know, I think that's such an important connection because, especially as we get into talking about potential new wealth taxes that might be levied against Canadians is to understand the wealth builders are also the most generous philanthropists. I, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time and it doesn't take long talking to them about what they're passionate about for them to tell you what charity they're involved in. But you've done some empirical work on this too. I'm reminded that you do that annual charitable giving study uh, on, yeah. a, uh, on an annual basis. And, and uh, the interesting part about it really is, is that the more money people have left in their pockets at the end of the day, the, the more generous they are with it. Do, do those re results surprise you? No, I mean, look, uh, we, we obviously we run a charity uh, as well here at the, at the Fraser Institute. And, you know, when the Liberals increased the top marginal personal income tax rate uh, back in uh, 2016, uh, those are predominantly, that's where the bulk of charitable giving comes from, the majority. And mm -hmm. so if you're going to penalize those people by taxing them more, what happens? Well, 
what we saw was actually a reduction in charitable giving. And, and that's really a tragedy. And I didn't see any charities across the country stand up and say, we shouldn't do this because if we do this, we're going to be penalizing the charitable sector. I, I, I think it's so important. I mean, these, these wealth creators, these entrepreneurs, these professionals uh, that are at the upper end of our income, uh, uh, upper end of the income distribution, not only are creating wonderful businesses and, and wonderful opportunities for Canadians, they're also the, the, the fabric of the, of the charitable and social sector. And that's why I think it's really important to, to cheerlead them and, and not to villainize them like, like uh, I think is being done uh, so much in, in Western societies. Let's talk about the villainization because before she got into politics, Christia Freeland wrote a book plutocrats, if I'm saying it correctly. And there's sort of an ideology in there that I'm interested in getting you to, to address, because I think it, if I was to say where, if you asked any young person today, what they felt about the super wealthy, they would say, yeah, we should tax them so that we have more equality. We should take more money from them and use it in social programs. There almost seems to be a knee-jerk reaction to thinking that we need to move towards more equality of wealth between different classes. And, and I'm, I'm sure it's sort of embodied in some of what we're seeing with our, our, our key decision makers. But what do you think is behind that? Why, why is that reflexively this notion that there's a lot of money over there, we should take it from them and give it to somebody else? Yeah, I, that's a, we could spend a whole hour on that, Danielle. I, I think part of it is an underpinning of a misunderstanding about income inequality. Uh, and, you know, people look at income inequality statically. They look at the, the top 10% today and the bottom 10% today, and they don't think about what that's going to be like 20 years from now. In fact, mm -hmm. one of the great things uh, about Canada, and certainly, uh, you know, if you go pre-2015 in Canada, was a tremendous amount of mobility. That if you looked at the, the bottom 20% of, of income earners uh, in, in 1993, within 20 years, almost 90% of them have moved, moved up the income and, and a lot of them to the top. So, you know, today, who's in the bottom 20% of income earners today? It's people that aren't experienced. It's predominantly young people getting educating, starting out in their life. Those people are all going to be moving up the, the ladder. We have a very small group that's permanently stuck uh, in, in the bottom 10%. And I think those are the people that we should be focused on really. That's where, uh, that's where I, I think Canadians want to be focused on. So some of this, um, uh, us and them is, I think, based on this faulty premise uh, that uh, we have worsening income inequality in Canada, which is actually not the true, if, not true if you look at mobility uh, across uh, across time. And I think that's really important. Wealth obviously works the same way. We have we have uh, uh, lots of wealth today, and, and it's predominantly held by older people. Uh, why? Well, because they're old, and they had lots of time to build up their wealth. And, and young people today are, are going to be old people uh, at some point, and they're going to be much wealthier than they are today. So I think we have to get that conversation right. And then I think we also have to, to, to get right that, yeah, some entrepreneurs become extremely wealthy. And most of those entrepreneurs uh, do amazing things for society and they give back most of their wealth to society. Uh, and so I think we want to encourage people uh, to take risks, to do amazing things for society, to develop amazing products, to innovate. Uh, and uh, uh, and we, we want, as a country, we want to attract those people. Mm -hmm. Penalizing them is going to send them elsewhere. Uh, and that's really part of the problem in Canada, that if we if we penalize and demonize businesses and wealth generators and entrepreneurs and scientists and doctors, um, we're going to become a less appealing uh, country uh, for those people. And they're going to look elsewhere. I, you know, there's been no time in our history that, where people are as mobile as, as they, they can be today with their wealth uh, and, and just personally. 
So uh, I think that's a really important conversation. Um, I want to talk more uh, because you've got numbers as well showing that that is already beginning to happen in Canada, that we're, we're seeing a, a chase away of those important investment dollars. And But before I, I leave this issue, because I, I think you're right, we all just have this basic human desire to make sure that our friends and neighbors are not suffering. And so I, I think that the notion that there is that I think you described as 10% of people who remain stuck at the lower income level. I'll probably have to talk to Chris Sarlo about this, but if you want to comment on what some of the factors are there, that might help us move on to sort of the next step and realizing that just, just taking dollars away from somebody else isn't necessarily going to solve some of those structural problems. What are, what are some of the factors there? Yeah, I mean, the, the, if you actually look at poverty in Canada, permanent poverty, it's, it's a very, very small percent. It's nowhere close to 10%. Uh, you know, you're, you're looking on the order of, of, in terms of poverty, probably around 3%. Uh, and there's certainly, there's certainly factors there, uh, Danielle. And, and I think it's, one, it's worth exploration. And two, it's, it's if, if you have blunt instruments that don't focus on those in most in need, the, 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 the need doesn't really, sorry, the, or, the, or the resource don't get to those people. You know, so um, people, uh, single mothers uh, with, are, are, one of those, are one of those groups. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, parts of the Aboriginal population would be would be among uh, that group. Uh, people uh, with dependency uh, issues, uh, you know, be it drugs or or alcohol. Mental health is a, is a really important part there. So I think it's understanding the characteristics of the people that are sort of permanently uh, uh, stuck are, is so critical. And you know that's why I look at things like minimum wages, which is just this blunt instrument which doesn't do uh, any good uh, for uh, for those people that uh, people who advocate for the minimum wage uh, increases are, are trying to help. Uh, blunt instruments uh, really, uh, the, while they're well-intentioned, have a very, very negative negative impacts. And so I think it's a really important question to ask, well, what are the characteristics of those that are stuck? All right, let's then talk about the super wealthy because they have been under attack. I mean, you can see, and most of it is driven by uh, political rhetorical language. I think we saw this, that in the United States when Elizabeth Warren was talking about taxing the rich. We've seen it in policies that we've had at provincial and federal level where there are wealth taxes or taxing the 1% or taxing corporations. I think a lot of this rhetoric is driven by politicians, but there, there's obviously some underlying and foundational philosophy behind it. So we, we talked a little bit about some of that and you, we, we can elaborate a bit more, but, but let's, let's talk about the impact that, that wealth taxes have, because I, I think you've done some writing looking into the federal budget, and I don't know how we're going to solve these kind of massive deficits. We'll talk about that too, but I think there's this idea, well, let's just make the, the wealthy pay for it. We didn't see any measures in this budget, but I got the impression from some of the things you've written that you think something's coming. Well, well certainly the federal government has talked a lot about uh, things like wealth taxes, and it obviously has us really concerned because uh, again, if, if you penalize uh, wealth creation, uh, wealth is going to go somewhere else. And, and what we saw from 2015 to 2019, sort of the five years pre-COVID, um, was we saw a massive exodus of investment dollars from, from Canada. Uh, $186 billion net left our country uh, for other jurisdictions around the world. And so this, and I think a part of that was driven by uncertainty, quite frankly, Danielle, about what's coming in terms of, in terms of wealth taxes. Uh, the, the Liberal uh, federal government certainly increased personal income taxes at, at the upper end, uh, even though uh, those at the upper end pay the pay their uh, the most in terms of a percentage of of, uh, of income taxes. But then layering on a, a wealth tax or increasing the capital gains tax uh, is only sending a, a direct message to those who create wealth that 
actually, you know what, if you are successful in Canada, if you take risks, if you work hard, um, we're going to penalize you more and more and more. And that sends a message that maybe this isn't the right place to take those risks, to generate the businesses, to invest uh, the dollars. And, and we certainly saw that pre-COVID. We saw this uh, shift of, can of capital out of, out of Canada. And if we actually do uh, have a federal government that puts in place a wealth tax, we're, we're just going to see more of that. And that's really one of my greatest concerns is we don't want to send that message to the, the, the people who generate opportunities for Canadians. I think that's well, the message and the wrong way to, to, to actually have a robust uh, economy with lots of opportunity. Well, and the danger is that if you allow the government to start taxing in this way, the capital flees and they still have the idea that they should be taxing wealth, then it can start going into lower and lower levels. I think that the wealth tax, as it was proposed by the Broadband Institute, just initially started by saying, well, it'll just be on income over or assets over $20 million. But if they don't generate the revenues that they're looking for in that, you can imagine it would be, well, maybe it's over $10 million or maybe it's over $5 million or maybe it's your principal residence. And they've been they've been looking at principal residence valuation and, and you've had to report whether you sold, sell uh, your home for the last number of years. Should we be bracing ourselves for something, uh, some policy change on that? Yeah, it's cer there's certainly lots of rumors uh, about that, Danielle. And I, I think that's the damage. The, the damage is in the rumors because they, it creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty. You know, when you have a federal government that is talking about wealth taxes, that's talking about penalizing successful people, that is that is talking about taxing principal residents or, or, or studying it, um, that then leads people to think, okay, geez, well, is that actually going to happen? And if that's going to happen, I should be changing my decisions today. Uh, and so all this uncertainty in terms of policy uh, it creates this sort of cloud over entrepreneurs uh, and a cloud over Canadians, and it leads to bad decisions. Um, you know, typically entrepreneurs, you, you put bad policy in front of them, they're going to find a way to get over it. Um, but you put uncertainty in front of them, and that makes decision making really hard. Uh, and, and so, uh, I, you know, I, it, it's really unfortunate that the government hasn't said, or the federal government hasn't said, we're not going to raise taxes. Here's the no, real. Oh, oh, sorry. No. Yeah, one of the positives I'll say is I, I don't. I don't not sure if she meant to say it, but uh, Christia Freeland did say recently in a, in a, in a Bloomberg uh, interview that she had uh, that um, the best way to deal with the debt situation in Canada was to grow the economy. And boy, if, if, if that's their uh, if that's what they're going to do uh, and they're going to be really serious about it, the first thing they should do is to come out and say, we are not going to increase any taxes. We're going to be focused on growing the economy. In fact, to grow the economy, we have to provide Canadians with the right incentives. I'm not sure that's going to happen, of course, but uh, I, I really think that's what has to happen. And that's the best way to deal with the situation that we now find ourselves in. Here's the challenge, though. No matter if you if you don't have a right size of government doing the right things and targeting their approach, the amount that they need to spend is 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 pretty well unlimited. And I guess I, I, I hear I want to get your take on universality, because if we addressed the issue of those who were stuck in the poverty trap and directed uh, our spending to support them and directed our programs to support them, that would be one thing. But it seems like there is, uh, all politicians get enamored of, of universal programs and great big nationally run universal programs. We're hearing about national daycare. They've talked about uh, perhaps the national government needs to take over long-term care. We need to have a national pharmacare program. And I, I think the, the idea behind that from those who, who like a large and growing size of government is it's locking in as many people as possible 
to um, supporting that program so that it can never be changed. It can never be pared down. You could never restructure it. So I'm always very nervous when I hear about new universal programs. And I, I wonder um, how, if there's some way that we can look at social policy. What, what is the right amount of government? What is the right amount for the nonprofit sector? What's the right amount for the individual to take care of themselves? So is it, it, how do you look at, the, at that as a guide? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a really important question, Danielle. And, and uh, maybe if we get one or two listeners uh, on this episode, you can have me back on to talk about the right size of, of government, because I, I think we could talk about that for an hour. But um, look, I, I think that's the question. Uh, you know, government is a really positive, powerful force uh, in achieving the ends that Canadians want. Uh, and it can become too large and be a destructive force. And so it is about getting the size of our government right. Uh, and we've done uh, wonderful studies. In fact, one of the guests that you're going to have on, Livio DiMatteo uh, from Lakehead University, wrote a book for us on measuring the, the right size of government. You know, what is the size of our government that's optimal? Optimal at generating economic and social progress. And this has been studied. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Canada's, uh, Canada's government pre-COVID was upwards, total government was upwards of, of 41% of, of our economy. Uh, and when you look at the, the right size of government, optimal size of government is around 26% of the economy. So our governments in Canada are too large. And what there's no better place to look at than healthcare. I mean, healthcare, we have this uh, goal in Canada, which I think is the right one, of universality. Uh, but we're not the only country in the world that has that goal. You know, there, there are uh, uh, most advanced countries have the goal of universality, that people should get healthcare without regard for their ability to pay. So. Let's take the US out of the equation. Let's look around the world at universal healthcare countries. And, and what do we find? Well, we find that Canada is among the top spenders on healthcare with among those countries that had universality. Uh, and yet we're at the bottom in access to doctors, access to nurses, access to technology, uh, like CAT scans and MRIs. We have the longest waiting lists. And so we're not getting value for money for our healthcare dollars. Yet all these other countries that have the same goal as us are doing much better so let's take the lessons from the Swedens of the world, from the Netherlands of the world, from uh, Japan, and, and let's learn what they're doing. And, and, and you know, most of the successful universal healthcare uh, uh, countries have parallel private systems. Mm -hmm. That's a conversation we have to have in Canada. So it's, it's really, it is about getting the size of government right and, and really understanding what balance you need between the private and public sector. Uh, and that's true for the economy. And it's certainly true for, for programs like healthcare as well. I'd love for you to say a word too about entrepreneurship and innovation, because I think that there has been this idea, because we've had the publicly funded healthcare monopoly in, in hospital services for over 30 years. I think there's this idea of, well, we just need to give them more money. And if we just give them more money, we'll be able to get better results. But there's something missing there. It's the it's the creative destruction that happens to use. I know your colleague, Jason, uh, Jason Clemens, is a big fan of Joseph Schumpeter. But this, this notion that uh, you also need to destroy old processes to create new better ones that that is absent i think from a government environment i just don't know that they're hardwired that way and that's why entrepreneurship is so special and so different but a little bit scary too the idea that you would apply those kind of creative destructive forces to something as essential as healthcare makes people very nervous is there a way that you can bridge that gap well, I think it's about looking around the world at countries that do and countries like Sweden that have private hospitals and, and a privately run hospital can still be funded by government, can still compete with a government run hospital. And what does that incentivize? Well, I think it's really important to have competitive forces that make you want to look at your budget, 
make you want to provide the best care, uh, make you want to run things uh, efficiently. And that's really one of the core things that we're missing uh, in, in Canadian healthcare. It's, and as you put it, it's, it's really that, that continual process of trying to get better and trying to do things better and innovate, innovate process, innovate the size of, 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 of hospitals, uh, maybe what the hospital uh, uh, services and, and all of those kind of questions uh, that's the kind of questions you're going to get in a, in a more competitive system. And, and certainly that's one of the, the, the key things that lacks from, from Canada's healthcare system uh, is really that uh, that competition, which drives better results. I love that you put it that way, because to me, it doesn't really matter whether something is delivered by the public sector, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, the charitable sector. It's a matter of having that interplay between them and the, the competition so that they're constantly working on, on creating new innovations. Now, I want to talk to you about the, the dollars that you said of, of $186 billion that has left Canada. That seems like, a, I can't even imagine the, the lost opportunity that is embodied in $186 billion. What would have happened if we had not only been able to keep that amount of money, but attract in that additional amount of money because capital can flow all around the world. How, how, how do you look at that number? What, what are some of the missed opportunities that we have by not being able to keep that, those dollars here? Yeah, it, it, I think it all comes down uh, to opportunities for Canadians. Uh, and that's really the, you know, business investment. Just, it just, it's not something that the average person who's not kind of engrossed in policy and economics thinks about, like in terms of a, a sort of a macro country sense. Um, but when you talk about a flight of capital out of the country, what you're really talking about is a flight of opportunity for Canadians out of the country. You're taking away opportunities uh, for Canadians. And when you look pre-COVID, that's what we saw in, in, the, in the economic growth numbers, really low rates of economic growth in the five years uh, preceding COVID, really low rates of private sector job creation uh, in Canada uh, pre-COVID. Uh, obviously, a, a flight of capital or a decrease in, in, in business and investment out of the country. And, um, you know, really, business investment is the bedrock of prosperity. You have more businesses, better equipment, better technology, uh, and that all just creates more opportunity for, for Canadians. And I, and I think, um, you know, as we come out of COVID, that's going to be the question. Is how, do, how do you actually generate a robust economy? How do you build back better? Well, you have to have opportunities for Canadians. That's kind of sort of the, the, the bedrock of what makes a, a successful society. And so um, I, I think it's absolutely critical. I, I think it's, it's something that, you know, in 2019, I was becoming more and more optimistic because, you know, we've been doing this work since, since 2015, kind of highlighting this flight of capital out of the country. And over that period, more and more, what I will call influential Canadians started to sort of come out of the woodwork and talk about these things, you know, uh, CEOs of, of major banks of RBC and Scotiabank were highlighting Canada's competitiveness and this this flight of capital out of the countries. Even the Economist, uh, mm -hmm. which which you know I, I don't spend a lot of time reading anymore, talked about that foreign investors were were looking elsewhere in, instead of instead of Canada. Our ranking on uh, on leading indicators like the World Bank's ease of doing business, where we ranked uh, among the top countries fourth in 2007, we plummeted all the way down to 23rd. Uh, in, in 2019. So there was a lot of talk and there was discussion about this in 2019. Obviously, COVID uh, has really impacted that. But I think as we come out of COVID, that conversation has to return because uh, our future, our economic future really depends on it. I want you to, to talk a little bit more about that because I 
I guess when uh, when Richard Nixon said we're all Keynesians now, I, I can't help but think and wonder, are we all Marxists now too? Because there has been this idea that is set in that um, if you if a company earns a profit, they're doing it off the backs of their labor force or they're doing it off the backs of customers. And so I, I need you to, to address the issue of profit and why it is so important that it, it, it strikes me, to me, I guess it's obvious, but I've been, I've been uh, involved in Fraser Institute readings for a long time. A, a company, would you rather work for a company that is losing money or one that is making money? Because when they're losing money, it's pretty obvious. They've got to lay off staff. They can't pay for training. They're not going to be able to expand. But what is the other side of that? Because I think there's the idea that, oh, well, if companies make profit, Profits, they're just going to give it to their shareholders, or they're going to take it out of the country, so it can't be taxed, and and it's not it's not fair to the workers. What a, what a what a wonderful thing that uh, a company that makes profit would give it to their shareholders. You know, I don't look at companies uh, and 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 talk about them differently depending on their size. I think it ultimately comes down to what makes us all better. And so let's come back to the restaurant in our community, run by mom and dad, uh, trying to create a better life for their family so their kids can have opportunity. Uh, they're trying to make a profit uh, because that's how they pay the bills. That's how they pay the mortgage. And that's how they pay for Little League and all those great things. Uh, and that's how they're going to get their kids uh, uh, through university and create a better life for, them, for themselves and, and their kids. And so, yeah, they're striving to make a profit. And why shouldn't the profit go back to them? That's what they're trying to do. But in doing that, what do they have to do? Well, they have to make sure that they have good food. They have to make sure they have a great atmosphere in their restaurant. They have to make sure they treat their customers really well. Uh, a restaurant that loses all of its staff every week because it mistreats them isn't going to make a profit. So they treat their, their staff uh, well. And those businesses that don't, don't survive. And so it doesn't matter if you're small. It doesn't matter if you're medium. It doesn't matter if you're large. Uh, you're, you're, you're all trying to maximize your profit for your shareholders. And in doing so, treating your employees right, treating being part of a, a, a community, of course, um, treating your customers right, innovating, creating great products and, and, and services. Uh, and again, it's a process. And those who don't do it, that's the wonderful thing about our, our, our system. Those who don't do it, uh, they end up not surviving. And so I think it's, I, I think it's really important. We, we shouldn't be demonizing uh, profit. Look, look at our, our pension plans, our, our Canada pension plan. Uh, look at our pension plans uh, for even things like Ontario teachers. Uh, they're all invested in, in corporations. Uh, they're invested in banks. They're invested in oil companies. Uh, you know, heaven forbid. Uh, and uh, and and they're really their returns are going to fund the retirements of people. And I think we have to keep that in mind. You know, these profits don't just end up going away somewhere to uh, some fat cat. They they're actually they go to real Canadians. You and I, teachers, firefighters, uh, nurses, entrepreneurs, uh, laborers. Everyone uh, benefits uh, from having a successful society where companies can actually flourish. You know, it's funny. I think that that argument is people get it when you're talking about the mom and pop shop. And so, it's interesting to me how you phrase that. It doesn't matter if you're a small business or medium business or a large business. Does something change when it's a corporation? And I guess I'm looking at all of the additional spending that happened during COVID. There seemed to be this idea especially like maybe the most ex uh, prominent example is Air Canada paying bonuses to their senior executive after getting a huge amount of taxpayer money. Um, paying managers bonuses in the normal course of business is, is part of how business operates. But boy, there's a visceral reaction that people had to that. 
and to, to, to the point where the, the money was ended up being returned. And I, I, I'm, I'm interested in knowing how you perceive that issue, because in some ways, it's those kinds of examples that I think make people think poorly of capitalism and entrepreneurship and free enterprise and corporations. Is there another way we should be looking at that? Well, they sure do. I, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, what what some, some of the problem is, is, is that the, the fact that a lot of these businesses are in protected industries. So they're not really facing the same kind of competition that the, that the family restaurant is facing. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. You know, when it, when it comes to telecommunications or even airline travel or even banking in this country, they don't face the same competitive pressures as, as a restaurant owner uh, because it, they are protected from outside competition. Uh, and, and that's, I think, really important. And uh, part, part of this, I think, is, uh, uh, you know, if, if we just allowed uh, a competition uh, in, in many, full competition in many of these industries, customers would have uh, better services, customers would have lower prices, uh, and they would be genuinely, genuinely happier. But certainly the kind of examples that you mentioned uh, don't help. Uh, and, uh, and again, I, I think this is a process. So I, I really believe that uh, if, if, you have a, if you have competition, uh, and you don't have barriers to entry, and you don't protect uh, you don't protect businesses from competition, whether it's domestic or foreign. Uh, you're going to get some some wonderful results, and ultimately the the ones that don't service their customers and shareholders are going to be weeded out. And that's really uh, what a competitive society, uh, competitive economy looks like. Let's talk about that because I know you've been doing a lot of writing on uh, our competitiveness challenge. How how do you how do you frame that? We've talked about uh, the the flight of of dollars that would otherwise be going to investment here. W what are some of the other measures you're looking at to determine that that Canada is 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 either falling behind or lagging where we could be on the issue of competitiveness? Yeah, I, I, and again, uh, Danielle, I think it's really important for for kind of listeners to think about this not in terms of uh, big, medium, or, or small business. I always think the best way to kind of understand this is to talk about that small business. Like, how do you encourage those entrepreneurs to, to start to do things that are in the best interest of customers? Um, and, you know, if you make it impossible to start a business in, in, a, in a country, entrepreneurs aren't going to start businesses, right? I mean, that's, you know, if the barriers are too high, they're not going to do it. If you tax away all of their profits, they're, they're just not going to do it uh, because these people are smart. Uh, they'll do something else. Right. And so I think you want to create environments where it's easy to start businesses. You're encouraging them to start businesses. You don't have massive amounts of red tape and regulation, something you uh, obviously uh, in, in your uh, former life did a wonderful job fighting against uh, and, and you still do it. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, I think, look, the balance between the government sector and the private sector is important. The level of taxation is, is, is really important. You don't want to penalize people for taking risks and becoming successful. Wealth taxes, uh, graduated income taxes that overly penalize those who become successful. Uh, uh, we talked about regulation being critically important. Uh, you know, all of those things I, I think are, are really important for a country to look at. And, and all of those things frame what I would call sort of competitiveness uh, or the World Bank calls the ease of doing business. If you are in a competitive country, if, if, if you don't make it easy to do business in your country, you know what, you're going to have less of it. People are going to go elsewhere. And that's what we saw in Canada in the five years uh, preceding COVID. They went elsewhere. Business investment was flowing out of the country. The World Bank was telling us we were getting less competitive. Major CEOs were talking about the problem that we had in, in Canada. Uh, and I think that's just such a shame because I think we're all here. We all love Canada. We all want this country to be the best in the world. Um, but if we're going to turn away the people that underpin a successful society, 
uh, that 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 really is not in our best interest. Tell us what some of the other aspects are that, that you look at that have you concerned about the direction that we're going. I, I think GDP growth, for instance, is another indicator. And and is that how it connects? As you see dollars leave, you should expect you're just going to get a lower level of, of GDP growth. Is is that is that one of the reasons you look at that? Do you look at unemployment? Give us some some idea of, of where you think the, the indicators are going the wrong way. Yeah, I, I, of course, I, we, we look at uh, GDP growth, we look at unemployment, we look at uh, private sector, uh, private sector job growth. I mean, all of those are outcomes of, of business investment, right? You have high rates of business investment, you're, you're going to get higher rates of GDP growth, you're going to get more opportunity, so more job creation, you're going to get lower uh, unemployment. And so uh, that's really why business investment and competitiveness matters so much. Because if you have high rates of business investment, if you're a super competitive country, you're going to do better on all the variables that we care about as a, as a society. So, you know, it starts with competitiveness, start with getting the policies right. Uh, then the business investment comes uh, and you get that, that wonderful entrepreneurial growth uh, and you get all of the things that Canadians want, better economy, better job creation, better opportunity, more money for healthcare, more money for education, more money for social programs. Uh, and, and that's really why I'm so concerned about the state of Canadian competitiveness. It's funny because I'm in Alberta and I always feel like Alberta gets the entrepreneurship better than the rest of the country. Maybe maybe I'm, I'm just being parochial by saying that. And so I feel really optimistic as we emerge from the, into this post-pandemic world that there's a lot of money sitting there waiting to be invested. But after reading uh, a lot of your columns, I'm feeling a lot more pessimistic. Maybe, maybe I'm looking at the wrong indicators. Maybe the fact that we have a lot of dollars doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate into investment. It's not going to translate into job growth. So, so, so tell me about that. I mean, what, what do you, what do you, should we be optimistic um, or do we need to see some actual changes what, in policy to, to, to really fuel optimism and get to performance? Yeah. I, I see a lot of people that look at these sort of variables being really optimistic. Talk, you know, they're talking about green shoots and they're talking about, uh, uh, you know, we're seeing some great economic results. We should expect to see positive economic news coming from what we just went through for a year and a half, right? So as people get out more and as people start traveling and start going to, 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 uh, to pubs again and having family members over, they're gonna increase their economic activity and we're gonna see a bump in all of the sort of economic variables, job creation and, and GDP growth, and it'll be positive. And it could well be positive throughout this year and into 2022. I, but I look at the medium term, you know, once you get that sort of bump from the bottom of, of the COVID experience, I have real concerns because we, we still have this underpinning of not being a competitive country. And so there might be lots of money for investment, but if, we, if we're not competitive, it's going to go elsewhere. Uh, and, and I think that's my worry. It's, a, it's about, you know, once we get through this little bump that we're going to get from COVID, um, we're, we still have a lot of policy problems in terms of making this a competitive uh, economy. We're, we're still, uh, you know, one of the least competitive when you look at the World Bank uh, among, the, among the advanced countries. And, and I think that's what has to change. We, we, we have to have a, 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 a sign on Canada that says, hey, we're open. We are open for business. We're a great place to do business, an easy place to do business. But I think it's the opposite. I, I think actually mm -hmm. we're looked at internationally as a place where it's almost impossible to get projects done. Uh, you know, we're, we're all have a lot of policy uncertainty. We have a government that talks about penalizing success. Uh, and so I think investors, lo and behold, say, oh, maybe I should look elsewhere when I'm thinking about where to invest. And, and I think that's the big problem when I sort of look at the medium term. So am I pessimistic or optimistic? Mm -hmm. You know, I am certainly pessimistic about the medium term, but I believe that that's why I believe organizations like ours are so important. 
uh, I, I believe that Canadians are, are going to come back to this issue as, as being one of the top that's on their minds. Uh, and I think they're going to be open to policy change. And, and uh, you know, I look at, at our history and our history has some wonderful examples that we can get things right. Uh, and I think Canadians ultimately will get things right. And so um, I'm pessimistic about the medium term. I'm optimistic that uh, sooner or later we're going to figure out a way uh, to make Canada super competitive. Can you talk to me about one of the dangers? Because there is also another term in uh, the free enterprise or the capitalism world called grantrepreneur of a person whose business model centers around chasing after government dollars. And I'm I'm a little worried that we're entering into that realm now because I think the that the the calamity of the last 15 months has has shown us that supply chain issues are very serious and that if we can't produce things locally, then we're kind of at the mercy whether it's vaccines or PPE or ventilators or anything else. And so I wonder if that then creates an environment where people are going to want government to give money to business. And there's already been some high profile mistakes that has happened on that front. Um, but is that legitimate? I mean, is does that compensate for bad policy if governments then work with the other hand to use money to support individual businesses to ensure that, that uh, we're continuing to grow in some of those key areas? Yeah, I, I think this is really important, uh, Danielle, because instead of letting, letting a market decide what's important, the government's going to pick or try and pick uh, uh, the winners and the losers. And, and, and it has a really poor history of doing that, uh, protecting industries, giving grants uh, to, to industries, crowding out private sector uh, it, while it's doing so. And, and that's the, a real danger. Um, you know, we, we've seen this government have a kind of proclivity to do that with its super clusters. Uh, and and uh, lo and behold, it's it's really not interested in creating super clusters. It's about evenly distributing that money across the country, uh, right? It's it's done politically. It's done through a lens of everyone has to get a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, I think if you if you want the best uh, society, if you want uh, the most robust economy, if you want to create opportunity, the private sector is the one that has to to generate it. But giving companies money isn't a way to do that. It's about creating a level playing field uh, for everyone. Uh, and I think that's that's so important. Uh, and and that level playing field for everyone, and not those who have political connections are getting grants, or or those big companies who have machineries in place to get those grants, um, or advocate for more regulation. Uh, it's it's really that level playing field. Let, let's talk because you mentioned that we we at one point in near history. I mean, it's near history because even I can remember it. We seem to have a consensus about what government should and shouldn't do, especially around deficits, balanced budgets, and running surpluses. I thought that that was locked in. I thought we learned the hard lesson of the 1990s, and it didn't matter what political party you were, that you would recognize that just pushing off debt to a future generation to pay for was was unethical, that intergenerational transfer. And yet now we're back in the opposite, where it seems like no one has an appetite to, to rein in spending. I, th I think in, in some of the things that you've written about talking about the federal government, we may have a 30-year time horizon where they're planning for deficits. Yeah. I, can't, I can't imagine how it is that we now turn that around back to the consensus that we had back in, in the 1990s. Do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's really important. And, um, you know, it's 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 not just a, a COVID issue. Like if you look at the federal government, it was running massive deficits pre-COVID, right? I mean, it and, and so, yeah, of course, COVID increased the severity of our deficits or increased the size of our deficits and, and, and the level of debt. But this is an issue that predated COVID. I will say it was optimistic in 2019 because the federal deficit was a real concern uh, amongst the minds of, of Canadians. Um, so I still think there's this there's sort of ethos out there that you know prudence matters when it comes to government policy, mm -hmm. um, and and we really got to 
push to make sure that Canadians understand the importance of, of that. You know, we went through a period in the 1990s, which most young Canadians won't understand, where um, we had a massive debt problem, government debt problem, as we entered into the 1990s, which was built up over two decades. And we almost hit the debt wall, went bankrupt as a country. In fact, the Wall Street Journal called us an honorary member of the third world because of our debt problem. They called the Canadian dollar, the Canadian peso. And then what happened? Well, then, um, you know, we had political parties federally of all stripes pushing in the same direction, right? We had uh, the reform party advocating for solving the problem. We had the liberal government that was in power, uh, put forth a historic budget to tackle the size of the, of the deficit and to, to move towards balanced budgets. So we had liberals federally doing it, NDP provincially doing it, conservatives provincially doing it, liberals can, uh, provincially doing it, regardless of the government, federal, provincial, regardless of political stripe, they were all moving towards prudent, prudent, more prudent spending, balanced budgets, uh, and then talking about competitiveness. They were lowering taxes, the federal government, liberal federal government, uh, and, and NDP governments and conservative governments provincially, lowering personal income taxes, lowering capital gains taxes, making Canada more competitive, focused on business regulation. Uh, and that's, we've really moved away from that. And, and, and that's what, you know, made the 2000s in Canada so successful. You know, we were more competitive than the United States. We uh, had better economic results than our, than our uh, partner uh, down south, uh, and certainly relative to other OECD or advanced uh, countries. And that's what we have to get back to. We have to get back to prudence in government. We have to get back to balanced budgets. We have to get back to thinking about uh, uh, how competitive we are as, a, as an economy. I'm taking notes as we go through because every question I ask, I'm sure I can do another full hour with you on. But let me ask this one because I know it's going to be an hour long answer. But maybe you can tell me who I need to, to talk to about it is I think what has changed is that this notion of modern monetary theory has set in that as long as you can print your own money and you control your own currency, debt doesn't matter. It, you, it's almost like you can print endless amounts of money. You never have to pay it back. You never have to worry about interest rates rising and putting you to a point where you're eating up more of your operating and, and diverting it to finance charges. And there's something that's wrong about that theory that I can't put my finger on. I know it's enticing to think you just have to print money because we've been doing it for the last year. Yep. But what? where does that end? It, 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 in the past, when, when uh, republics have attempted to do that, it hasn't ended well. So what do you see happening? What's different this time? Why, do, why is it our politicians think it'll work? Well, they have a new fancy new name for it. <laughs> that's for sure. And if, if, if listeners here are interested in, in uh, modern monetary theory, our, our senior fellow, Steve Globerman, has done a wonderful uh, primer on it, uh, really easy to understand. Uh, and uh, it's a pipe dream. A country cannot print money uh, indefinitely uh, and uh, uh, and uh, and not it not be a problem. Uh, and and I think so this is really important that the amount of debt that is being government debt that's being bought by the Bank of uh, of Canada uh, and and certainly the size of our uh, size of our debt, you know what happens is interest rates will go up. Mm-hmm. and we saw it in the 1980s, 1990s where we had a massive increase in interest rates. And, and then what happened? Well, uh, at one point in 1993, 33 cents of every federal tax dollar was going towards interest costs. Can you imagine that? 33 cents of every, a third of every dollar was going just to pay interest. It wasn't going to healthcare, wasn't going to social programs, wasn't going to education, it was just to pay interest. So if we don't get this under control, you know, five, 10 years down the road, our kids are going to be paying a massive price for the decisions that we made today. And I think that's the, 
that's the key. Um, and again, uh, Steve Goldman's done a wonderful essay on this. He's looked at countries around the world who've tried this. Um, you know, we don't want to be in the company of countries like Greece uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to this issue. You, you know what I think? I get the impression people think we've got a lot of runway. We've got a lot of time before we have to worry about that. And and I don't know. I mean, can when these kind of changes happen, when you all of a sudden have a, a currency crisis? Do they happen all at once? Or do you, do you get a lot of, of runway? I'm just thinking for everybody listening, thinking, gosh, I've got to renew my mortgage. Maybe I should call my banker and renew it early. What, what should we be watching for to know whether we're hitting that point where it becomes unsustainable? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so do we have a lot of runway? I think it's hard to, to pin down exactly what happens. But, you know, you take on more debt as a, as a country and um, you your interest payments start going up. Uh, and certainly what happens is, is, is that increases when interest rates go up, then you get downgraded by the bond rating agencies, right? That leads to an increase in, in interest rates and it becomes a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's really what we have to be in part, have to be worried about um, in terms of the time horizon. Um, you know, it won't come when the, the, the governments that are doing it today are in, in, in office. And I think that's the problem. I mean, they're not going to ultimately be the ones that are responsible for the mess that they're politically speaking for the mess that they're they're creating. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I'm optimistic that Canadians are going to come back uh, to, to this issue being of top of mind, because, again, I look at the polls in, in 2019 pre-COVID in the fall of 2019. The state of the federal deficit was among the top economic issues that Canadian families were concerned about. So. Um, I still think there's a there's an ethos of of prudence here in this country, and um, we got to make sure that Canadians understand the situation that we're in. All right. Now I know that you've got five main priorities that you've been talking about for how the government could begin going down this path of uh, of de developing more prudent budgeting. I want to go through them uh, one at a time, just so that you can you can tell me why you've made them such a big priority. So first of all, a prudent budgeting that would get us back to balanced budgets. You know, it's funny, I almost have lost hope that anyone is going to chart that path because they've spent so much money in the last year. I think that one of the charts I saw was at the federal level, this current administration has added as much debt as all the previous governments combined in Canadian history. I, I, it, almost seems, it, it almost seems like it's a pipe dream to talk about a balanced budget again, but how do you see that being possible? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you have to completely unwind the COVID spending. I mean, we could talk about um, whether or not that was uh, prudently done, whether responsible, whether it was targeting, uh, targeted. I have questions on, on, on serious questions on all of those, but we've got to unwind that. Uh, and then we need a, uh, a prudent plan to a balanced budget in a short period of time. Uh, certainly, in, in my view, not longer than three years. And, and I think it can be done. Uh, and I think Canadian history shows it can be done. Let, let's go back to the Liberal government in, in 1995 when it produced that historic budget and it balanced the budget by 1997. So that three year period can be done because if, if it's indefinite like it is now, what message are you sending as, as, a, as a government? What you're saying is at some point we're going to massively increase taxes to pay for all of this stuff. And that certainly is the undertone of the federal government is that, yeah, we're going to tax wealth and we're going to tax capital gains and we're going to tax, uh, uh, we're going to look at taxing primary residences. And so that uncertainty about the tax bill increases and it affects decisions, investment, real investment decisions today. So we have to be prudent. We need a plan to quickly balance the budget uh, because we can't worry about uh, and deal with some of the other issues until we do that. I, I want to ask you what role the provinces play, uh, because it seems to me, as you pointed out, in 1993 or in the 90s, all 
all the governments were moving in the same direction at the same time, regardless of whether they were provincial or federal and regardless of, of what their uh, their political ideology was. Is there is there any bright spot that we're seeing at the provincial level? Is there, is there a leader at the provincial level that is going to get there that can basically give an education and guide to everybody else about how to do it? Yeah, I, I think this is really, really important. Uh, you know, the, the, the provinces obviously are uh, as important as as the federal government. It's not just a federal government issue that the provinces uh, have to have to do this. I'm not seeing a lot of leadership, particularly among the big provinces. Uh, you know, uh, Ontario, uh, the Ford government seems to be plotting the same course uh, as the McGuinty government. Uh, you know, as the Wynn government, uh, trying to trying to focus on on um, controlling the growth rate of spending and letting revenues catch up rather than actually dealing with the problem today. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the same thing right across the provinces. So I, I think this is a message that needs to needs to really uh, uh, come home for not only the federal government, but provincial governments as well. And again, you point to the 1990s um, when Alberta did it, Ontario did it a little bit later in BC in 2001, Saskatchewan did it in 1999, really tackling their fiscal situation. And so it's been done in Canada before. It's not a partisan issue. It's not a conservative liberal NDP issue. It's just a, it's a, it's a good common sense uh, practical issue that we have to have to solve in this country. Okay, three years. That's uh, that's the target. So I'll measure all the performance of governments relative to that. Let's talk about number two, no new taxes. Um, and you talk about the marginal tax rate going up on personal income taxes. You want you want to see uh, that reversed. So so talk to me about that because I think again the natural inclination would be oh, the government needs more money. Therefore, they need to increase taxes so they can increase tax revenue. How can you get back to balanced budget if you're not relying on new taxes? You can grow the economy. I mean, that really is the best way to deal with the debt situation is to grow the economy. Something, actually something uh, Christia Freeland and I see eye to eye on, uh, which, I, which I found uh, really interesting. Yeah, let's worry about the denominator. Let's worry about the economy. And if the economy grows, then the debt level relative to the economy will decline. Right. And that's really what we need to do. So let's grow the economy and making sure that we don't pile on new taxes on wealth generation and and success and entrepreneurial spirit it has to be one of the priorities. In fact, uh, did I say no new taxes? I think what I meant to say was we, we actually really need to uh, reduce taxes uh, on on uh, on wealth creation uh, and on entrepreneurs and on on hardworking uh, Canadians so that we incentivize them properly to do productive things. All right. Let's talk about the the third one, capital gains rollover. And I, I it's it's you're you're talking about going, I think, in the complete opposite direction than what the speculation is about. I think the notion is that if you've got a capital gains of the sale of a stock or your cottage or a windfall gains from the increase in your property value if you live in Vancouver or Toronto, because those are the places where they've really surged over the last number of years, that you should tax that more. If I understand what a capital gains rollover would be, is you you get taxed less as long as you're rolling that in to a new investment. Is that how that would work? Absolutely. I, I think capital gains taxes are really instructive. You know, they were reduced uh, under a liberal government. Uh, uh, Paul Martin was finance minister, and we have some we have some quotes, by the way, from Paul Martin on our on our website that uh, you can go to in some of our commentaries, where where he talked about why he was doing this. He he was doing this reduction in capital gains taxes to make Canada a better place to invest, to incentivize entrepreneurship, to incentivize investment. Uh, I mean, it's just completely opposite to the rhetoric that we hear today. Uh, and, and I think it's so important. So yeah, a capital gains tax rollover that, you know, if, if you're an entrepreneur and you have uh, an investment in a, in a company or in a building, uh, you should be able to sell that uh, without being penalized and, and, and a good chunk of it being taken away from you through tax, through capital gains taxation, 
if you invest it back into the economy. And I think that's the that's the, the rollover mechanism. It would it would be something that would make sure that capital flows to the highest end use, and we would get this reinvestment uh, in in the economy, which I, I think is really important, and and certainly something that uh, I think is really worth looking at. The the last thing we should do is talk about increasing the capital gains tax, because again, that's a message to investors that uh, boy, uh, you might want to look elsewhere uh, when it comes to investment. All right, let's talk about reducing the or sorry, eliminating two bills. And this is particularly important in Alberta, but I think every province, especially mining provinces as well, should be concerned about what happened with Bill C-69. We called it in Alberta the No More Pipelines Bill because it created a new regulatory burden. And then Bill C-48, which seemed to be targeted specifically specifically at Alberta's bitumen resources so that it would not be allowed it to be exported out of the Port of Prince Rupert. So you talk about repealing both of those bills. Is, is that to send a signal about reducing the regulatory burden and reducing the timeframe for major investments? Or is there is there other elements to why it is you've targeted those bills in particular? Well, I you know, look, I, I think uh, those two bills are critically important. A natural resources play such a huge uh, part uh, in, in in our economy, uh, such a huge part of of uh, what makes Canada a, a wealthy a wealthy country. Um, you know, when you look at uh, countries around the world uh, that that have exports in in uh, in their natural resources, can you name a better country uh, from which you would want to buy your oil and gas than Canada? I can't. Uh, not when it comes to environmental record. Not when it comes to human rights. Not when it comes to uh, uh, providing wonderful economies where people can lift themselves up by their by their bootstraps, and so you know, in order for us to get uh, investment in this country, we have to be seen as a country in which you can actually get things done. You can you can go through a regulatory process, and at the end of the process, which is defined, which there's a timeline, um, you can get uh, an answer to yes or no. Things in Canada just drag just drag on, and we we're, we're known now as a country that it's almost impossible to get projects done. So. The repeal of these two bills, yeah, it is to reduce the regulatory burden uh, on getting projects approved in Canada. And I, and I really believe that uh, the regulatory burden uh, and the red tape uh, in this country is something we need to take a very significant look at. Okay, now you're going to have to deprogram me on the issue of federal carbon tax. Maybe I've got Stockholm syndrome, I guess, because I've watched it be fought. The Supreme Court came down with a ruling saying that no one disagrees that carbon dioxide increase in emissions is going is creating an existential threat to Canada. No one put any forward any countermanding evidence to that. And so the court concluded, uh, the only thing they could conclude, that uh, Alberta had not made progress in, and the other, uh, the other uh, provinces presumably as well, had not made progress in reducing overall emissions. Therefore, you had to price carbon. Therefore, if the province didn't do it, the federal government had to. Therefore, it validates the federal carbon tax. I mean, we've even seen now at the federal level, all of the political parties are in favor of carbon pricing. So I almost feel like, okay, this is a reality. It's the end of the line. It's been litigated. We've got, uh, we've got every single political federal party saying we're going to do this if you don't. But yet you still think the federal carbon tax should uh, should be eliminated. So so tell me what I'm missing here on this issue. Well, I, I think this is a really important issue. Again, it comes down to competitiveness. If you're next to the United States, which doesn't have a carbon tax, you're making your uh, economy less competitive. And it's not to say that I'm, I'm against a carbon tax. I'm, I'm, a, I'm pro carbon tax. If you put the carbon uh, tax at the what's called the social cost of carbon, and if you then get rid of all the regulations that are in place, uh, right, that that try and uh, that try and restrict people from doing things. So, if we really truly want to price carbon, yeah, let's do that. 
Let's get rid of all the regulations and, and red tape. Let's price carbon at the social cost of carbon, which by the way is not $170 uh, a ton. It's a much, much lower than that. Uh, then I would uh, then I would say, okay, let's let's give that a go. But that's not what's happened. Uh, what's happened is the carbon tax has come on top of all of the regulations. And in fact, uh, they don't want to stop there. They want to regulate more, uh, right? And uh, and they want to put the the price of uh, carbon in terms of the carbon tax well, well, well above the social cost of, of carbon. And Ross McKittrick, who I believe you're going to have on, uh, is really the foremost scholar in this, uh, Danielle, and um, he's got some wonderful estimates of the social cost of carbon, which uh, I think would really be illuminating for 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 listeners. So yeah, I think we've got a lot of work to do uh, here. And I, I think, I have a suspicion that if we put the $170 carbon tax on today, Canadians would revolt. Huh. Interesting. Right? Because, uh, because our energy costs would, would skyrocket. It would be difficult to take family vacations uh, because of the price of gas and heating our homes and, and all of those things. Uh, so yeah, I, I see it as, as, a, as a big issue for, for Canada and we need more discussion around this issue. And again, that's not to say that I'm pro or, or against. Um, it's the way it's being done that, uh, that, that matters most. And so perhaps having a, a provincial government take a lead on it? Well, look, I, I think if, if, we can, if we can have a carbon tax that's set at the social cost of carbon and we wipe out uh, the, the, the regulations and truly price carbon, and, and, and by the way, that might not mean you get less carbon, that means you just price carbon. Uh, if, that, if we do that, then, then yeah, let's have that uh, discussion. And I think most Canadians can, can get around that. But uh, I think just by layer it, layering it on top of everything and then putting more regulations on and making Canada less competitive uh, is certainly not the way to go. All right. Let's um as we're just wrapping up here, I wanna I wanna get a, a sense from you. I mean, I, I I was feeling optimistic and now I'm feeling a bit more pessimistic. I wonder if we can end on an op a note of optimism or or not. I mean, I, I worry that after all the work that those fellow travelers have done in trying to advocate for free enterprise and capitalism and wealth creation and job creation, I feel like the the the, the tide is really against us. I feel like it's a that that we're moving in the opposite direction and we're going to probably move in that opposite direction for some time until something dramatic happens. Like, as you mentioned, 1993, it was an external force, the International Monetary Fund that said, whoa, enough is enough. I, I feel like we're living in a, a, a bit of a, a parallel universe here where, where politicians think there's no consequences to their decisions and the general public is is happy to go along with that. I, I, I worry that we're going to get worse before we get better. And so I'm, I'm really hoping we can turn our conversation around and you'll be the optimist while I'm being the pessimist. And you're going to tell me I've got reason for hope. <laughs> yeah, look, you you mentioned 1994, 95, and that external force, that Wall Street Journal article. Well, uh, let me just give you a little background, two seconds on, on the history there. Uh, the Fraser Institute had been, long been doing work educating Canadians on the concern of increasing debt levels. Uh, and we had a conference in Toronto called uh, Is Canada Bankrupt? Where we had a bunch of presenters presenting on Canada's fiscal situation. Jonathan Fund, who was a writer at the Wall Street Journal, attended that conference and then went back to the Wall Street Journal and wrote the seminal piece that called Canada Bankrupt. And that, if you, if you, uh, if you uh, uh, listen to the history of those on the inside, that's what ultimately changed the federal government's direction because as a result of that article, interest rates shot up and the Canadian dollar decreased and it forced the politicians to change. Uh, and so the Fraser Institute played a big part in creating that change. We didn't intend to, but just by doing what we do and educating Canadians, um, we were able to create change. And I, I think that's what makes an organization like ours so important um, that, uh, you know, I'm optimistic that Canadians will come 
uh, around to being concerned about the issues that we are concerned about. Uh, I think Canadians will come around to understanding that we need uh, to focus on competitiveness in this country. Uh, and I can't tell you exactly when that is, Danielle. And again, I'm, I'm pessimistic on the medium term, uh, but I do think Canadians are going to come around and I do think we're going to get uh, a, a better investment climate in this country. Uh, and it's thanks to people like you and, and thanks to uh, all my wonderful colleagues at the Fraser Institute uh, that I have that belief, because I, I do think there's enough people who are willing to stand up and talk about issues uh, that matter uh, to our well-being. Um, and uh, you're a big part of that. So uh, I really appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you coming back to the Institute because I, I think this is just one more way that we can communicate to Canadians about all the things that you and I and, and people like us are concerned about. Well, it's been my pleasure talking with you. You mentioned that uh, Dr. Michael Walker headed up the Institute for 30 years. Let's look for, I know you don't do projections in the Fraser Institute. And I, I keep asking for people to, for your scholars to sort of tell me what, what's coming. And they say, no, 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 we don't do projections, but let's do a projection on where you hope you'd be. 30 years from now, what what, what do you hope the, the world looks like? What kind of influence do you hope that the, the Fraser Institute has had on the political and economic discussion? Yeah, wow, that's a big question, uh, Danielle. I, I hope when I retire uh, that Canada's number one, uh, that we are looked at uh, in terms of how do you create this welcoming society where newcomers and Canadians uh, have this amazing standard of living, number one in the world. People, everyone wants to come here and, and we're looked at as a, as a country to get that does things right, that has the best healthcare system in the world, that has the best education system in the world that has this wonderful upward mobility uh, that's tops in, in the world. So that's what we're trying to achieve. I hope when I retire uh, that that's the, that's the goal. But I think as you point out, things ebb and flow and we got to continue to do what we do. And I think right now, uh, an organization like ours uh, can't be more important. So um, yeah, I'm, uh, I, that's, that's, uh, that, that's the way I look at the future. I, I think if, if we all keep doing our part, Canadians are, are going to ultimately come around uh, to uh, to demanding those things. That is a very positive note to end on. Niels Beltos, thank you so much. President of the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit fraserforum.org.